Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. If you have questions about our church or following Jesus, feel free to reach out to us at info at theplantchurch.org. Now, here's today's message. Well, cool. Well, I'm excited to speak with you this morning. Uh, welcome. It's so good to see you. Um, we're going to be continuing our, our series that we started a couple weeks ago called Firm Foundations. Uh, so if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open up to the book of Acts, chapter 26. Chapter 26. And chapter 26, chapter 8. Let's try that. There's no, I don't even think there's 26 chapters in Acts. Verse 26. We'll try that again. We're going we're gonna to read that in a little bit, but we'll, we'll stay here for now. Um, this morning, we, we've been taking a few weeks to talk about what are some key postures or things that we value as a church. Like, what, if we want to be marked or known as a church for anything, what are the things we want to be known as? So the first week, we talked about being Christ-centered, uh, that we want to turn and be focused on Jesus. And what that means is we are laying down all of our own kingdoms to lift up and live under the truth and reality that Jesus is king, that Jesus is Lord. And that means there's kingdoms of ours that we need to lay down. And that leads to the second thing we talk about, which is being discipleship motivated, which is basically how do we learn how to lay these kingdom down, kingdoms down and live, live under a different king in a different kingdom. And that's what discipleship is really all about. We talked about how Jesus presses in on our everyday normal reality and we begin to see how God is ruling and reigning over the everyday aspects of of our life and how we do that together. But then it's going to go even further as we're living Christ-centered and, and discipleship-motivated. What I want to talk to you about this morning is what it looks like to be spirit-compelled. We want to be a church known for being spirit-compelled, that not, not only is Jesus pressing in on our ordinary, everyday routines of life, but the Spirit is actually pressing us beyond the boundaries of what we're comfortable with or what we understand. And so that's what I want to talk with you about this morning, about being spirit-compelled. Um, just by way of introduction, there, there was an article about four years ago, and it was interviewing the author Tara Westover. Uh, some of you might be familiar with her. She wrote a book called Educated. Uh, it, it was a memoir about her life. She received a PhD from Cambridge University, but her upbringing and her educational path to get there was extremely unorthodox. She'd actually been raised in remote mountains of Idaho to survivalist parents just out in the middle of nowhere, totally cut off from civilization. And she com is completely self-taught all the way through high school before she went to college. Uh, so it's a pretty incredible story. And, and, but her, her unique perspective as an, a cultural outsider, someone who had no idea what it meant to live in civilization, um, she has some very interesting observations that she makes about American culture. And this interview was, was kind of touching on that. And she made this statement in this interview, I found fascinating. She said, we think that because we know someone is pro-choice or pro-life or they drive a truck or a Prius, we know everything we need to know about them. In a climate of uncertainty about the future, she said, people become tribal. We just start to acknowledge people by these labels, she means. We separate ourselves by these kinds of statements. And then she said, people become vulnerable in this world to narratives that start to demonize people who are not like them. You know what I'm talking about. 
Just a quick look at the news, and it's pretty easy to see what she's talking about, right? If you, if you watch Fox News, you get one set of narratives about who the bad guy is. You, are the, you watch CNBC, and you get another narrative about who the bad guys are. You read the New York Post or the New York Times, and you start to see dividing lines all through our culture. Does it feel like things in, in the world are more divisive than ever? And Lord, don't even go on social media. That's like a minefield. So there's these assumptions that get made in our culture about people who are different than you or different from me. And assumptions are, are also made about other Christians. I, I once remember talking to someone who was surprised that someone in their life group voted differently than them. They were like, oh. the horrors, yes. Like how... How is this even possible? I thought we were all Christians. And they associated voting with their allegiance to Jesus. The world loves to make enemies in this way. Taking simple statements or simple things that we state. And, and we, they love, the world loves to make enemies this way. Now what the world says is, well, we need to accept everyone. But at the same time, the world says... And, and different groups of people say that everyone has a different list of who should be accepted and who should get rejected. Just depends on who you're talking with. But everyone has a list. Every uh, facet of culture, every, every frame, every ideology, they all have a list of who the enemies are. And now this gets into the church. And, and we get tempted to stake a, take a stand for truth, for example. Or we want to make it clear that we don't support certain things. And often in, in our Christian, in, in our culture, Christians in our culture become known more for what we're against than what we're for. You ever experience that? And a lot of times, some people don't even understand what they're talking about when they say this. Now, I understand and, and actually really empathize with the struggle that this is, right? Because Jesus really did give us a way to live. He did give us an ethic to live out our lives by. There are commandments and practices that we're supposed to live out. There is, in a sense, a certain way to live, a set of ethics, to be the church in the world. But when the surrounding culture starts putting pressure on that set of practices, Christians, at least in our culture, I find that our our reflex is to start defending ourselves. Do you feel that at all? You talk to people, I need to defend myself. I need to defend the truth. I need to defend what I believe is the right way to live. You, you feel that tension. We, we wrestle with this a lot. And we're defending ourselves from the culture by digging in our heels and taking a hard stance on what we believe. But I would actually suggest that when we do that, we're actually violating some of the very ethics of Jesus we say that we are following. Here's what I mean by that. Here's what I mean. When we go along with the digging our heels in, drawing a line in the sand, what we're actually doing is reflecting the culture back on itself where we start putting people in boxes and categorizing and separating people in different groups. We start drawing hard lines in the sand based on simple signifiers like pro-choice or pro-life or how you vote or what kind of car you drive or what kind of books you read or don't read. And it feeds into what Dr. David Fitch calls the enemy-making machine. 
There's just this thing churning in our culture, constantly trying to set people against each other in different ways. And a lot of people, especially like news organizations, make a ton of money off doing that. So this is hard for us to square, this enemy-making machine, when we think about things Jesus said, like, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. If someone forces you to go with them one mile, go with them two. And Jesus is saying this in a cultural situation that was far, far more hostile than ours is today. Now, this, this kind of struggle is real. You live that out. If you're trying to be faithful to following Jesus, this is a real struggle. Like, well, what, how do I, what do I do then? Like, how do I, do, is, if there's, I'm drawing a line isn't good or I'm making enemies, like what? I don't get, how am I supposed to do this? This struggle is real. Well, this struggle that we're feeling, I think, in the church today is actually very similar to what's happening throughout the book of Acts. The Jews, especially these Jews that are now following Jesus, were trying to remain distinctly Jewish while the culture of the Roman Empire was putting pressure on every group of people to be different than they were. And the Jews were probably one of the only groups that really dug in their heels to remain distinct from the outside world. And you'd see this in pockets all around the Roman Empire, that they were going to dig in their heels to be different. And this is uh, theologian Willie James Jennings says that Acts is about, the book of Acts, is about a new community called the church that's suddenly caught in between this Jewish distinctiveness and a ruthless empire. And the church is caught in the middle, kind of like going, what do we do? How do we love people but be faithful to how Jesus called us to live? You know what I'm talking about. That's the real tension here. And they could either embrace this pluralistic empire where basically anything goes, just as long as you affirm the status quo and get with the program. Anything, you do whatever you want. Or they could dig in their heels and stick with their identification with with Judaism and Jewish culture and try and keep people who don't agree far away. And instead of choosing one of these two options, what Jennings says is at work in Acts is actually something totally different. This is incredible. It's the Holy Spirit who is the primary actor and character in the book of Acts. It's not Peter, it's not Paul, it's not Philip that we're going to read about in a minute. The primary star of the show in Acts is the Holy Spirit. And what he says the Holy Spirit's doing is bringing about a totally new set of possibilities that no one thought possible before. He says that there's not this like middle compromise we need to make between these two positions where we just kind of take a little bit from this and a little bit from this. He says, when the Holy Spirit comes, there are these entirely new set of redemptive possibilities because God's kingdom has come. This is new creation at work. We're not stuck in the old creation where you're stuck in these enemy-making paradigms. Are you all with me? So this interpretation of Acts and what we're going to read, especially in a minute, I think this is incredibly important for us in our world. Wouldn't you agree? Where there's just such a sense of this side or that side. And the Spirit is saying, why in the world would you choose something like that when I'm doing something completely new? 
So our job isn't to decide where the lines in the sand are. Our job is actually to discern as a community where and how is the Holy Spirit leading us and moving us forward. Our job is to move with the movement of the Spirit. Our job is to move and think well, biblically, theologically, living out the way of Jesus, but paying attention to how the Spirit's compelling us into spaces we did not think we could go. And this is one of the foundation markers of, as a church that we want to be, a Spirit-compelled people. And so I want to read a story here from Acts chapter 8 about this guy, Philip that I believe really helps us get a picture for what it looks like to be spirit-compelled. It says this, in verse 26, As for Philip, an angel of the Lord said to him, Go south down the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and he met the treasurer of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under the Candake, the queen of Ethiopia. The eunuch had gone to Jerusalem to worship. And he was now returning, seated in his carriage. He was reading aloud from the book of the prophet Isaiah. And the Holy Spirit said to Philip, go over, walk along beside the carriage. And Philip ran over. And he heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. Philip asked, do you understand what you're reading? The man replied, how can I unless someone instructs me? And he urged Philip to come up into the carriage and sit with him. The passage of scripture he had been reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was humiliated and received no justice. Who can speak for his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, was the prophet talking about himself or someone else? So beginning with this same scripture, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. And as they rode along, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, there's some water. Why can't I be baptized? And he ordered the carriage to stop. And they went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came out up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch never saw him again. But he went on his way rejoicing. Meanwhile, Philip found himself farther north at the town of Azotus, and he preached the good news there and in every town along the way until he came to Caesarea. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your spirit would be at work this morning as it has been, that we would be attentive to your speaking, your challenging, your inviting in. And I pray, Lord, that Jesus would be, would be glorified in our thinking, in our actions, and as we discern how you're leading us forward. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom to discern this other way that doesn't fit neatly into this or that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to talk to you about uh, three ways that the Spirit compels us just from this story in, in Philip's uh, walk here and in his journey. And simply this, that the Spirit compels us to uncomfortable space. And the Spirit compels us to unlikely chase. And the Spirit compels us to give attention to an unexpected face. 
These three things, I think, are incredibly important in this story. Um, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about what's going on in the context as we get into this. But uh, first, in verses 26 through 29, we see that the Spirit compels us to uncomfortable space. Philip is told to go down to a desert road. What is Philip doing out here in the first place? There had been a massive persecution just a few chapters earlier in Jerusalem, and, and the church was being scattered everywhere. They had to escape from Jerusalem. Uh, it was predominantly, though, the Greek Jews that were being persecuted and had to scatter. Those Jewish Palestinian Jews from the area were generally left alone. You can see the apostles were, were fine. They were able to stay. The original believers. But Philip was one of these folks kind of on the, the edges, one of these Greek believers who had come to faith at Pentecost and had heard the good news. And so he'd been persecuted and scattered and he'd gone on this crazy journey into Samaria. He was already crossing all kinds of boundaries and cultures to, to people that really, we, we don't go near them. If you're a good Jew, you go around Samaria, even though it was the fastest way to get to Galilee. And, and so Spirit, Philip has already seen God work among the Samaritans, and now the Spirit's telling him to go to a desert road in the middle of the day, at the hottest point of the day. This is an awkward place to be. It's a dangerous place to be. There were robbers and thieves on these highways. Uh, it, it was a place that was hot. It seems like nowhere. It's a place that's incredibly uncomfortable. Howard Marshall says this is a desert road, and by Luke saying that, he's underlying, underlining how strange and weird the Spirit's command is here. Uh, why, what, what are we doing here, Holy Spirit? There is no, it makes no sense that I should be in this space, that nothing good can come from being in a place like this. Philip was going to go into an uncomfortable space. Uncomfortable spaces for us are awkward. They're risky. They're confusing. They're far away from our favorite comforts. They're generally not obvious or where we think God is going to work. Now, just think about this in light of the story we just read. Imagine Philip was not obedient to the Spirit's leading and he didn't go into those uncomfortable spaces he would not have been able to sense the Spirit's leading to run after the chariot, and he wouldn't have heard, strangely, the words of Isaiah the prophet being read from the chariot. He wouldn't have had the opportunity to, to share and speak into this man's life and invited him into the story of the gospel. All of that was not even possible if he decided to stay with what made sense and with what was comfortable. Now, this is the key that we need to understand because the Spirit wants to compel us as a church, wants to compel you and me into uncomfortable spaces. Uncomfortable spaces, not because, how many of you are excited to be compelled into uncomfortable spaces, by the way? Yes, it's my favorite thing to be uncomfortable. Not because we're compelled there, not because, well, there's nothing good happening there and we need a Christian presence there to make it good now. That's not why. The Spirit compels us into uncomfortable spaces because God is already working there. And one who is already submitted to Jesus needs to give witness to that reality. You see, God's love is so vast. He's at work in so many unexpected places, but often it's hard for us to see past our cultural norms that make sense to us, where God should be working. 
often it's, it's just hard for us to see past what's comfortable, our day-to-day activity. Our assumptions about the world and how it works get in the way. And we never get to see the spaces that are different where God is working. And Philip could see this kind of space easier because, as I mentioned, he was already kind of an outsider to following Jesus. He was this group of people that didn't quite fit with Jesus' whole thing. Now, they were all Jews so far at this point that were following Jesus, but there's a distinction made between Jews from Jerusalem, from Palestine, from this area, and Greek-speaking Jews. They were culturally not Jewish. They were ethnically Jewish and culturally Greek. They were from all over the Mediterranean world, and they happened to be in Jerusalem for Pentecost. They heard people speaking in their language, and people shouldn't know their own home native language from where they're from. And they're hearing all about God has done and they hear the good news and they are joining the church. And this is incredible. These Greek Jews are not from Jerusalem, and, 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 but they're being welcomed in as part of the family. They belong there too. But what happens as the story develops is the Greek-speaking Jews and the Jewish-speaking Jews aren't getting along. And this is what happens in Acts 6. The Greek-speaking Jews have been marginalized and they're not getting food for the widows the way the Jewish, culturally Jewish widows are. And Philip is one of those chosen, a Greek-speaking Jew, a culturally Greek Jew, he's chosen to ensure that everyone is taken care of the same. So he had a very different cultural perspective from the majority in this space he was in. And this was going to help Philip respond to the Spirit's call to go into uncomfortable spaces. When you have a little bit of a different perspective, when you can get some distance and get some good perspective, you can notice the Spirit of God speaking and inviting you into spaces that you would not have been able to notice if you stayed locked in your cultural assumptions. Let's think about that for just a minute. This is important for us. West Milford, for example, 91% white, predominantly middle class, right? This is kind of the, the majority cultural assumption of West Milford. For most of us in the room, white and middle class are defining features of our cultural assumptions. Not for all of us, but for many of us. That's how we assume the world works. Now, it's not wrong. It's just one cultural perspective and set of assumptions on how the world works. And as we follow Jesus, every believer from every cultural background needs to take time to be aware of their cultural assumptions. Because those assumptions for every culture can blind us to some of the uncomfortable spaces that the Spirit wants to bring us into. Are you with me? Some of you are. Some of you are deer in the headlights right now. It's okay. Other cultures carry their own cultural assumptions that blind them to the Spirit's invitation in other ways. But when we get kind of to back up a little bit and unpack that, it helps us see, oh, maybe these things that I have assumed are not necessarily true. They're just the way I tend to think about things. And it gives us a different perspective for how God could be working in our midst. For those of us who would fall into this category of white, middle class, we just need to consider, and I'm speaking to you pastorally, I'm, I'm speaking to myself, we all need to consider how do our assumptions about how the world works keep us from the spaces where God is working? 
Now, for those of you in the room who do not fit into that category, we have brothers and sisters in the room who are immigrants, where English is not their first language, come from not middle-class backgrounds, maybe wealthy, maybe poor, black and Latino brothers and sisters, Latina brothers and sisters. And we need, let me speak to you for a minute, we need your voice in a majority white middle-class culture to help us check our assumptions, my brothers and sisters. Did you hear me? We need you to help us check our assumptions because generally every 91% of the people in West Milford are going to go, yeah, that makes sense to me. And that's not, again, it's not bad. It's just what it is. Are you following me? And these cultural assumptions that blind us to these uncomfortable spaces that the Spirit wants to lead us into, these cultural assumptions are, are getting in the way. And so we need each other, the body of Christ, to help us see. You might be thinking about that differently if you had this information. Or have you ever considered this perspective? And questions like that can be so good for us to share with each other and learn from other perspectives. So, so I just want to say from the front, because this is important to me to say, and I think to God, that you know, for those of us who don't fall into kind of the majority culture in the room, um, please make sure you give your perspective and speak up. Because I don't see all of what God is doing. No one in the room does. And we need each other in ways like Philip, where we can be people that are from a a perhaps marginal group or a group that's not in the majority, that has a different perspective. And for Philip, he's able to make sense of those uncomfortable spaces a lot easier because of his story. And for some of you in the room, you can make sense of those uncomfortable spaces a lot easier than the rest of us can. And so we need each other in order to walk into that space because God is at work in those spaces and the Spirit's constantly compelling his church to join him there. So that's the first way the Spirit compels us. The second is that the Spirit compels us into an unlikely chase. Very simply, in verse 30, I love this. The Holy Spirit says, go over to that chariot, that carriage, and Philip runs. I love it probably wearing his tunic. He hikes it up and he's like, I gotta go. He's going after this person. He doesn't know who yet. He doesn't know anything about them. But he's going after them with the love of God. And it is a furious pace he needs to keep up in order to keep up with the love of God that's at work here. God's desire, please see this in the story. God's desire for people is so great, we have to chase. No matter how unlikely the scenario is. I love uh, Howard Marshall. He says that the church did not simply stumble upon the idea of evangelizing Gentiles. The church did this in accordance with God's deliberate purpose. God is on purpose trying to chase people down in places that are so unlikely. People down that are so unlikely. God's so focused on bringing different people into the kingdom from you and I, into his family, that the Spirit is constantly pushing and compelling us to run and chase after them. This is the story of the shepherd that Jesus tells, leaving the 99 there to go chase after the one. 
Who do you see in the spaces of your life? Maybe perhaps that you don't want to approach or it'd be complicated if you talk to them or you aren't sure if that's really God at work or whatever, but you keep seeing them everywhere. God is maybe putting them there and saying, chase them, catch them, run after them, go to them. What are you still standing there for? I don't know how it's going to work out. What is this going to say about me? Man, go get them. The Spirit compels us into an unlikely chase. It does not make sense. And finally, the Spirit not only compels us into uncomfortable space and an unlikely chase, but the Spirit compels us to give attention to an unexpected face. This was a very unexpected face for Philip. He's now going to sit and give attention to a very unlikely human being. Socially, this man was very, very high up in in Ethiopian culture, very powerful, but it was complicated how his power worked and how he got that power and why he was trusted in this position of power. He was a black Ethiopian, actually probably technically from modern-day Sudan, uh, man, the Ethiopian Empire was very powerful at this time. Rome was not uh, able to subdue it. They, they were their own entity and kingdom. And most importantly for this story, he was a eunuch. Now, uh, without going into too much detail, if you don't know what a eunuch is, uh, especially in this day, uh, they were men who had been castrated, usually from the time that they were children. And, and they were set apart and castrated because they could be trusted with the king's harem, uh, his many, many wives and, and concubines. Uh, he, he could be trusted, like this eunuch was, with large amounts of wealth. Uh, because of this status as a eunuch, uh, he, they knew that he wasn't going to be respected to take power for himself. So you could trust a eunuch in this, in this time. And so this is a pretty complicated situation that Philip's getting into here. Now, what was also interesting about this specific eunuch is he had just been at the temple, or near the temple in Jerusalem, it says, worshiping. He he was at some level following God, the God of Israel. But this is interesting because according to Jewish law, he would have been forbidden entry to the temple because he, well, he couldn't be circumcised, quite frankly. He couldn't be circumcised, and even there's specific commands against eunuchs entering the temple. So he did the best he could, but he longed, he had a desire. Something about God was drawing him. He wouldn't have been a full convert, but there was something here. And he's got this complicated story, this forced castration from a young age. He would have had a very childlike complexion because he wouldn't have gone through puberty. And so he'd be a grown man looking very much like a little boy. Very complicated identity. He's being forced uh, into uh, this kind of life. He did not choose this. And so this, this very interesting, very unusual and unlikely person for Philip has invited him to sit in his chariot. Will you come sit up here with me? And I want you to pay attention, considering the life that this eunuch has lived, And what has happened to him in his experience. Listen to what he's reading about in Isaiah. A servant that remained silent. 
like an animal making no noise, confronted by the knife, the slaughter, or the shearer. He makes no protest, although he is humiliated and deprived of justice. And in a sense, he's put to death. It goes on. Who can speak of his descendants? Eunuchs didn't have children. His life was taken from the earth. And I love how a couple different commentators said his first question should have been very different than what it was. But he says, I need to know, is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? Something, God was at work in this man's life and he resonated with the story of the suffering servant because it's like, I know what that's like. See, we don't know when we get into those unexpected spaces and we're sitting and giving our attention and hearing the stories of very unlikely people, we, we don't know what they've been experiencing and going through. But can we allow the Spirit to bring us into that space long enough to hear their story? Can you tell me what this is all about. Now, Philip could have shut the whole thing down and said, let me explain to you the good news of Jesus. You are a sinner, and you need to receive the good work that God's done. He could have started there, and he would have been technically correct, but he would have been completely wrong. What did Philip actually do? The scripture says that he said, starting with that very passage, he told and proclaimed to him the good news of Jesus. Because this man had already identified with the story of Jesus in a really powerful way. And he could unpack the good news of Jesus. Yes, Jesus has been through injustice. He knows what it's like for the body to be treated violently. He knows what it's like to be hurt and treated unjustly. Let me tell you the good news about how he overcame that. And how this life is for you too. And then he's baptized, which is so powerful because baptism became the great equalizer because, you see, this replaced for the Christian circumcision. circumcision. He could be fully brought into the family without any of the complicated issues that were drawing lines in the sand before. And Jesus could redeem his life. This is so important because we could be tempted to hide behind the comfortable boundary lines that we like to draw with people who are different from us when we don't understand. But instead, Christians who are compelled by the Spirit do something very different. We are compelled to simply give attention to the person in front of us. We're compelled to allow God to do the work in them he is already doing. I love this from Willie James Jennings, he says, a disciple of Jesus is someone who's not only entered into the story of Israel, like it's their own story, but a disciple of Jesus also is someone ready to enter the stories of those to whom she is sent by God. Ooh. Have you ever considered that the Spirit is trying to compel you into these uncomfortable spaces and into an unlikely chase so that you can sit and be attentive with someone and hear their story and begin to see how God's already at work and from that space where God's at work begin to proclaim the gospel in their life? 
You see, this is how we bring family, people, into the kingdom of God. Can you be attentive enough to those unexpected faces that the Spirit brings you into contact with? Can you be attentive enough, enough to hear their story and see how God is already at work and give witness to that? There's a story, I'll just share this briefly. Uh, uh, this couple that been part of our church for a few years now, and um, they just came in, not following Jesus, a lot going on in their life, a lot of complicated things, messy things, and, uh, you know, Sue knows them, I know them, different people, different leaders in, in our church have, have just spent time with them over the years, and a lot of complicated stuff, right, Sue, we could, we could, I want about that like all day. So many complicated things, so many narratives. And man, if we had started at some obscure point with them or some kind of preset point and say, here's what you need to know, we would have lost them. But instead, people stopped and just listened to their story. Painful stories. Painful stories. And the gospel started to be proclaimed over their life in small ways. About a year ago, almost, they got baptized. That took like three, three and a half years. This is not quick work, but it's deep work. And it's the work that is God's work. It's not forced. It's not coercive. We're not trying to make something out of it that's not there. Here's really the good news. If you're coming in and you're not following Jesus or you're here following Jesus, wherever you are at this morning, here's the good news that I want you to walk away with from all this. Yes, the Spirit's compelling us into these spaces and to be with these people and to chase after them. But here's really the good news and the point that you need to see in this is that God is not a God who compels us to just think lovingly of people from afar. God is a God who loves people so much that he compels us to chase after them so they are not far. This is what it means for us to be a church that is spirit-compelled. It's messy. It's not quick. It's slow. But man, is it God's good work. So I want to leave you with a question. As we've been doing the last few weeks, we've been just making a few minutes of silence to prepare ourselves for communion. And as we examine our hearts, as the Apostle Paul said, that you should examine yourself before coming to the table, I I want to invite you to examine yourself in light of this good news that's been proclaimed. And I want to just put this quote up there from from Jennings. I, I couldn't have written it better, so we'll just use his words. Who are the people nearest me that the Spirit is pressing me to get to know, come to appreciate, and ultimately join? I just want to leave this up here for our reflection. And um, Jersey, if you could just come and, and, and just play. And before we take communion, we're going to take about three to five minutes here. Examine yourself in light of the gospel that's been proclaimed. Are there spaces of confession that need to happen? Repentance? Walking in a new direction that need to happen? 
let's do this to prepare ourselves before we come to the Lord's table. Thanks so much for joining us today. If this podcast has been helpful for you to know Jesus and make him known, then check out our website for more sermons and other resources, theplantchurch.org.